Ryan Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Melissa Fiorini, as well as Dr. C.J. Winkler. And we're going to talk a little bit about the monoclonal antibodies, one of the uh, mainstay treatments sticking around for COVID-19, one that's a little bit different and that it takes a little bit um, of preparation, uh, in my case, referrals. Um, and paperwork and things to make it happen. So um, we had the idea, said, you know, we've got these, the, this technology and this uh, medication treatment out there, this therapy out there, and let's bring in folks to talk about it and how they've instituted it within their uh, arena and then see where we are with the current research. So uh, Dr. Fiorini, give us a background on yourself and um, where we are with um, monoclonal antibodies. So um, I am an emergency physician who did a critical care fellowship I've been working at St. Peter's Health Partners in Albany, New York for the past eight years. Before that, I worked predominantly in New York City and surrounding hospitals. Um, when we were hearing of the emergency use authorization, at the time I was doing shifts both in the emergency room and urgent care. So I um, approached our leadership to say that I was somebody who would have access to all of the patients who were presenting with COVID, um, whether it be us testing them at the urgent cares and getting results and then giving them advice as to how to proceed or in the ER where they present much sicker. So I would like to take the challenge of setting up a clinic for the MADB distribution because um, that was going to happen in a couple of weeks. And we thought that this was very promising to help patients. Um, they agreed. So December 3rd, um, we had our first full clinic day with two nurses and I think about six patients we infused on that first day. And then it's history ever since we've been infusing Monday through Friday um, with weekend coverage in the ER that's adjacent to us. If somebody's at their 10th day and they're going to miss the opportunity. And I think we've done 600 30, 40 to date, and um, we're still going. Yeah, so we got to the uh, same point of an infusion clinic, but how I got there is a little different. I was a paramedic for many years, went to med school, I'm a emergency physician, and also I'm boarded in EMS. So I really make my living as being an EMS physician. Because of that, I am also involved in a lot of regional response and I'm the medical director for Texas Emergency Medical Task Force 8. And we have things in Texas called RACs, Regional Advisory Committees or Councils, that are administrative arms of the state health department. And they are responsible for coordinating um, responses in emergencies. Usually in Texas, those are hurricanes, but also sometimes uh, pandemics. and we as a group of thought leaders in the region said, you know, it's difficult to set up infusion clinics in the hospitals because you have to make a separate area to infuse the patient. Um, it, it, everyone's gonna get a dose from the state as far as the monoclonal antibodies. It's just difficult uh, to set that up. So we have a, uh, we had a large site set up for the pandemic response with 80 beds set up, uh, basically like a convention center type thing that had been there since March or April of the pandemic, but not used. So we said, what if we have all of these hospital systems donate their 
monoclonal antibody doses to a central pool through our, our RAC, STRAC, South Texas Regional Advisory Council, and then we will be able to use this centralized uh, location and transfuse patients with the, an the monoclonal antibodies that had COVID. And that was rather successful in getting the job done. We, we had an eye out to answer the um, EUA's call for equity in getting these medications to the right people um, and not just the right people, but also underserved people. So with an eye on that, we went forward. We started November 30th. We, in that short time, much like Dr. Fiorini, we, I think we only transfused maybe four the first day, but by the end, uh, when we transitioned our infusion center to uh, BCFS, we had transfused 750. That was back in January. They've done over 7,000 now. Um, you know, I, it was a success as far as, as getting patients into the facility that needed to be treated and not having it at a bunch of satellite facilities. So we're pretty proud of that. So let's talk about some of the basics in terms of the process of infusion, um, because I understand that the, the infusion center that we use uh, through my hospital system does like three or four a day. It's, it's not very many. It's just three or four spots. Uh, that they have available. Uh, but of course, I'm, I'm sure the other hospitals are doing theirs as well. Uh, give us a little breakdown of uh, the qualifications, you know, how does somebody qualify for monoclonal antibodies? Um, you know, how, how is it going to work and what is the process uh, for infusion? I'll take the qualifications. Uh, there's three umbrella groups. One is if you're 65 or older. Um, the second is if you have um, a disease process that in itself would make you have an, a suppressed immune system. So that would be diabetes, um, any immune suppressive disorder or treatments such as chronic steroids or cancer treatments, and then chronic renal disease. And then after that umbrella, it would be the age 55 or greater with heart problems or lung problems. All right, Dr. Winkler, if you can, uh, Throw us down on kind of uh, the, the process um, uh, that, that takes place with regard to getting the infusions and how it works. The process to get in to get the infusion in our system, how we set it up, we followed the EUA as far as criteria. And we sent out to the physicians in the region the EUA criteria, essentially. We um, sent it out in a, in a fillable PDF box. So they could see their patient. They could say this patient is um, high risk, but has low to mild COVID illness. They could fill in the boxes, just like Dr. Fiorini said, that BMI was greater than 35 or whatever the case. Oh, may yeah, be. I forgot that one. <laughs> whatever the case may be. Um, and well, we pediatrics. Live in San, we live in San Antonio, so BMI greater than 35 it, it is a large percentage of patients we treated. Um, so you know, we send it out to the community, they respond back, their physician or advanced practice provider would respond back with the paperwork, send it into a centralized collecting um, space to make sure that they are indeed eligible. I would look over along with my team, would look over and make sure that everything was in place. And then we would schedule them to come into the infusion center. And Dr. Fiorini, what is the process? I mean, what is the, the science behind uh, monoclonal antibodies. What, what's the, the value added for those that may not have 
you know, a lot of background or experience or their hospital may not be providing, especially some of the smaller community facilities out there. So, so the idea is that the antibodies are geared to attach to the receptor on the virus that the virus uses to get into the cell. And if you, what I tell my parent patients, if you have the infusion and the virus receptors are taken up by the antibody, no longer can get into the cell, it helps you clear it faster. Um, it's, you know, it, I, I believe that 10 day window goes along with the fact that eventually we'll all make our own antibodies to this virus. Um, but because it's a new virus that may take two to three weeks and the patients that are at risk that we've just talked about can end up in the hospital and possibly die before then a lot of them see a bump at that seven to 10 day mark. So that's why we encourage to get the antibody treatment soon to prevent that from happening. And Dr. Winkler, uh, with regard to, you know, this is one that that had, it came along, there was um, hit or miss, it's there, um, showed some positive compared to what we'd seen before. Where are we right now with the data and the evidence with regard to, uh, with outcomes now that this is something that's been in practice for a few months with regard to COVID-19? And is it more beneficial with uh, adjunctive therapies or some other therapy as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So being on the front line of the response, it's it's always a balance from science and trying to save lives and, and keep hospitals um, running. And they can't run if they're, they're full of COVID patients, um, overrun with COVID patients. Every system has a breaking point. But, you know, when I looked at the data, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's rather sparse to begin with. We had a couple of EUA data sheets out there, et cetera. And, you know, targeted therapeutics for COVID-19 are tough. We have well, Decadron, what we carry on my ambulances, seems to work the best. Um, we've been everywhere, remdesivir, uh, hydroxychloroquine, convalescent plasma. I, if we have to shift focus, I, I've said from the very beginning, you know, as the medical director of of the infusion center, we'll shift focus. Um, we're not tied to this, that, you know, we are doing what we think is the best operationally. And once the evidence-based medicine proves us wrong or right, then then we'll adjust accordingly. So that was a, a intro to answer your question, which was basically the latest evidence, the very latest evidence, which is not truly uh, uh, published yet. It's just an EUA data sheet essentially is from the Blaze One Phase Three trial, and that includes bamlanivimab plus um, a tesivimab. Tesivimab, yeah, close. Um, so those two in conjunction are the Eli Lilly products, and that latest study seems to show an absolute risk reduction. Still, more or less treating the exact same patients that I listed. Uh, in the EUA and Dr. Fiorini listed in the EUA earlier, just adding that um, that extra monoclonal antibody to the bamlanivimab treatment. And those numbers show an absolute risk reduction for hospitalizations or death of 5%. So a number needed to treat of 20. Now, Regeneron numbers are different. And I think Dr. Fiorini probably should speak to that. But so those latest numbers seem to be headed in the right direction. I completely agree that more RCTs need to be done, but we, you know, we're in a pandemic and, and, you know, that was our decision to move forward with the best 
uh, treatment option we felt we had at the time. And Dr. Fiorini, your, your follow-up uh, with regard to those adjunctive therapies or MAB uh, sitting on its own? Just that <clears throat> I don't actually have the, the actual latest Regeneron numbers, except for that they were saying that it caused a 70% reduction in hospitalization. And there was a number thrown out there that for every 10 patients treated, um, you were saving a, a ICU admission or mortality, but that's not something that's published. So I wouldn't speak on that. I would leave the drug companies ready to, um, to verbalize that. Anecdotally, we get calls and emails all the time. We're in the process of data collection and we get everything from, you know, I believe it saved my life to, I feel so much better. And, you know, it just, it, we, we haven't had bad outcomes that we know of. And all we hear are patients that feel that their symptoms have improved dramatically within 24 to 48 hours. And I've heard some of that as well uh, from folks that have gotten it, um, you know, about feeling better. And, and the question is, it's kind of like the whole, um, you know, viral upper respiratory infection with azithromycin talk. It was, is it just the time or is it, you know, just when it was going to happen or, or it was, a, you know, any type of therapies that you had. But at the same time, if we're seeing as everything is in healthcare, we're weighing that risk benefit ratio. And if we have, even if the benefit isn't giant, even though there's some research suggesting there is some, there is significant benefit, as long as there's not significant harm, then you, then you will, then you can kind of push that and continue to stay in that lane. And, you know, we see that. And of course we shouldn't continue to use something if the evidence comes out and uh, Dr. Winkler, you know, that it's kind of, you, you kind of mentioned where almost all of us are is if the research is there and the support is there, we'll use it. But in, once the research and evidence says we need to go another direction, that's the most important thing with healthcare. And of course, that's played very difficult for the public because they're saying our doctors, our healthcare system keeps waffling and changing its minds and going in different directions. Well, that's what science is. You're seeing science play out um, in, in the public eye, uh, with, uh, COVID-19 and things that are getting published and things that are getting pushed either, you know, because of the pandemic or before they're ready for prime time or a misinterpretation of data or whatever it may be. And so we're seeing it play out. And, and this is a profession where you should absolutely be ready, uh, to change direction if the evidence points you in that direction. Now, one of the things that since this has been, uh, instituted across the country, um, especially since mid-December when we've had vaccines available, there's been a number of questions. And the first and foremost question, Dr. Winkler, was getting the vaccine after and the window for after having getting a MAB treatment. But also, most recently, I had somebody who got the vaccine and then ended up with COVID uh, kind of in that window where it's not completely protective. And they had a question about getting the MAB as well. And so I wanted to see if there was any data that you had that states, you know, in relation to the vaccine, when and where, and, and if there's any hold for MAB. Yeah, that's a great question. We had all those and more from, you know, pregnancy to breastfeeding, et cetera. And the truth is, is we're pretty lucky in the San Antonio region that we have a, uh, a consensus. I don't make these decisions in a vacuum as far as being the medical director for the infusion center. I get a lean heavily on my infectious disease colleagues. And to be succinct, our recommendation is that generally you're not going to get the infusion, whether it's Regeneron or Eli Lilly's product, you're not going to get the infusion um, at least until 90 days after you've had COVID. Um, uh, excuse me. Uh, if you've had COVID. Now, as far as 
getting the infusion and having COVID, we've had those two. Um, I mean, the gist of it is we did here, we did treat patients that were pregnant and we did treat uh, patients that were breastfeeding uh, as a group consensus. As far as I think your specific question was, does someone get the infusion after having COVID? So if, if you've, so if you've had the vaccine and you develop COVID during that window, uh, do you get, are you still eligible for MAB even if you've had the vaccine? And then vice versa, um, if you've had MAB, do you need to wait to get the vaccine after you've had that? Because I've had some say, yes, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or no wait whatsoever after you've had uh, MAB before you can get the vaccine. Yeah, we generally, we generally follow the 90-day policy. Of course, there's not a lot of evidence is, is reason why there's these 30, 60, 90s, or some people recommend just not getting the uh, infusion at all. Dr. Fiorini, anything that you guys are using or seeing in terms of your policy with regard to the vaccine and MAB infusion before or after? Yeah, actually, that's happening a lot right now. Um, a lot of our seniors have gotten their first dose, and then I'm not sure if they're going to the facility and picking up COVID with their first vaccine, or if they're having a little sense of freedom and going out and getting COVID afterwards. But we saw a, a huge uptick with that. And the policy on vaccinations is that you can have your first dose and still get the MAB infusion. You may also have had both doses of vaccine and get the MAB infusion if you're COVID positive. Um, I guess probably the idea of that is, do we know how much immunity the vaccine gives to our elderly or to everyone? Um, or, you know, did they get COVID because it hadn't been the full two weeks after vaccine administration? So bottom line, if you get the vaccine first, you can still get the MAB infusion. And then if you get the MAB infusion, we do ask that they wait 90 days because that's what the CDC asks. Um, it gets a little challenging because the CDC recommendation for vaccination after having COVID is also still 90 days. However, there are so many schools of thoughts out there. Some people are recommending waiting 30 days. Some people are recommending two months. Um, some are just giving the vaccine, especially I think in nursing home populations to them almost immediately after having the disease. So um, it, it's, you know, patients are concerned about that. Um, if they get the infusion, they have to wait three months. But if they've just had COVID, it's not clear they have to wait three months. And that plays into their decision making. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've, we've heard the same thing as and uh, you know, for public that may be listening uh, to the podcast. This is just, as I mentioned, with science playing out, there isn't the evidence that says you have to wait 30, 60, 90. It's just the, the initial recommendation was 90. Uh, when I got COVID uh, back in November, um, I had just, I had about two and a half weeks before I'd been in the, I was in the Johnson, well, still am in the Janssen, Johnson and Johnson trial and had received the injection about two weeks, two and a half weeks before. Of course, still don't know whether placebo or the actual vaccine, but got COVID. And then the recommendation talking about when the vaccines became available, because of course, since that time, the Pfizer, the Moderna, both became available and, and whether to wait. And, and the, the goal being that the EUA on the Johnson & Johnson was going to be within about that 90-day period, which it is coming up right any time now, um, 
on when to get that. And the key is, you know, it's the public. We don't want you to miss out. We don't want you to not get the vaccine. Um, we want to make sure, but we want to make sure that you have access to all the treatments that are available, but also understanding that as science moves forward and we get the evidence that's available, these recommendations and timings may change. I saw just this last week some recommendation that, that said, you know, if you have opportunity to get the vaccine, go ahead and get it. You know, don't miss the opportunity because of trying to get exactly 60 or 90 days or whatever it may be. Let's talk about, before we wrap up, just some of the tips um, as folks out there may have access to some of these therapies and in, in putting together these programs and fusion centers. Some of the steps and tips, and Dr. Fiorini, I'll, I'll start with you because you said when this came out, you just stepped forward and said, I want to take this on and make this project happen. Uh, some tips on making this type of thing happen, um, and then some of the hurdles that people may not uh, see coming. Okay. Um, I, first of all, I'd like to commend Dr. Winkler and their their uh, institutions, um, success, 7,000 patients is just mind blowing. We tried to do the same thing. Um, getting everybody's doses in our area and the region to one place, which would have been our place. And we were successful. We, our group Trinity has three hospitals. And then we also had, um, another sister hospital and everybody would contribute their doses to us, but nothing like the numbers that Dr. Winkler was seeing. Um, I think right now, if people were thinking about starting an infusion clinic, it's a little bit different than in December because the word is out and people are much more familiar with it. Um, when I first did this, the first two weeks, I was literally going through urgent care positives spreadsheets and calling the patients myself and explaining what the, the medications were, um, somewhere between, you know, 30 to 60 days into it it turned from me having to look for patients and explain to them how the treatment might help them to people referring and just, you know, demanding the treatment. Um, I would say, uh, as far as our success, we finally got a web page for submission so that, you know, my house wasn't filled with sheets of referrals in every corner. Um, we have a website that people anywhere can refer and then they get an automatic email confirmation, which cuts down on the work at all. So if people were going to start a clinic, getting that, um, it involved early is key is key. And then, um, I think going forward, you know, we're looking at the time periods for infusion. Do we want to cut the, the Lily infusion down to 16 minutes when we ask our ER to do it over the weekend, because somebody might be out of the window by the time we can get them in on Monday. Um, and then I read something really interesting in preparing for an, another talk where they said, we have to shift our mindset about the disease for the COVID infusions. And then before we were telling people, if you get it, you stay home um, until your symptoms are such, and then go to the ER. And now we're asking people, if you get it, get tested as soon as possible. If you're in that risk category, test, 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 because the sooner you get tested and we get a positive, the sooner we can infuse you. And with a lot of the testing centers, the turnaround is 24, 48 hours, even 72. So my take home message is if you're in that high risk group, you feel symptoms, get tested immediately. And then we take it from there because the most important thing is a positive test. I don't know of anyone who's infusing without a positive test. Yeah. And ours is doing the same thing. Ours is doing either. It has to be a positive test within the system or a printed copy of their results from 
you know, an official. It just can't be written on the back of a napkin that says you have COVID uh, or any of those types of things. So, Dr. Winkler, you went from three or four infusions a day starting uh, in November to now at least just rough math in my head over 100 a day, uh, maybe pushing that 150 a day. Uh, talk about that in terms of getting that program in, getting that buy-in of, of all the facilities, and that scalability uh, of size of going from such a small relative infusion to you know a bunch every single day. It took a village to make that happen. And we're lucky in a way, I think this is the only time I'll ever say this, we're lucky in a way that we have multiple hurricanes because the reason we... <laughs> The reason we're able to respond to those hurricanes effectively is because we have these racks and a, and a state response system with emergency medical task force. And so we all communicate always. I mean, I'm talking from hospitals to pharmacies to EMS providers. So we have a, some, some groundwork that has already been laid that I had nothing to do with um, that has been there for years and years that, that makes it a little more possible and specifically um, our, our regional advisory councils in Texas, it's pretty, it would be easier to replicate. So in our regional advisory councils, we have multiple visit, every EMS, ER, infectious disease, pediatric trauma surgeon, everybody has meetings through this rack. And that includes all hospitals. So we have multiple hospitals, multiple EMS and fire systems. So the reason that's important is because when we have a program like this through say Texas Division of Emergency Management that has monoclonal antibodies that want to get out there, they reach to our rack and they say, what do you think about this? Can we make this happen? And so being a medical director for the EMTF-8, um, I meet with all the players. We had meetings for weeks and weeks before. We're very blessed in the fact that our rack called STRAC has IT people full-time, 24-7. And they built that, as I said, fillable PDF. I'm also lucky I work for UT Health and we provided all the physicians and APPs. Um, University Hospital provided the pharmacy. So the central cash was, was sent by, just think of this, imagine this, sent by you know private hospital-based system to the University Hospital to dispense to a regional infusion center that I for UT Health am the medical director of. And we also, I, I just can't say enough about BCFS. I have to throw them in there. It's a national organization, but but they provided nursing staff that it is above and beyond. Um, they really deserve, a, uh, you know, uh, congratulations. But so we built all that before we even opened the door. So we had all the computers in place, et cetera, with an eye on that equity. And we sent out memo blasts throughout the region to all physicians, um, especially the first few days we focused on those underserved uh, physician clinics. So we made sure to get the message out very, very clearly that yes, you can test, as Dr. Fiorini said, <laughs> talk about our, our the public not knowing what's going on, test, don't test, go in for a test, fake a treat, treatment, don't. So we sent out very clearly like, yes, test, and yes, come into this. If you, if you feel sick and you um, go to your doctor and they say you're eligible for this. So there was a there were about two, maybe three weeks of meetings before talking about plans. We built everything before we opened the door, including, you know, deciding if we're going to use the EUA, those difficult questions about whether someone's going to get uh, MAB treatment uh, a day after, you know, they've had the COVID vaccine, if they get, you know, that those kind of things were all discussed. And we all share a, a group me, a text thread. And so we always have the answer available. So it, it was a large, large collaboration to make that happen. And, and, you know, I can't say enough city leaders, county leaders, or a whole bunch of people, you don't just have a space 
for 150 patients a day just happen out of a thin air. So it, it, big group effort. Yeah, that's that's the key. And I think you'll see very different because you you guys clearly have two separate uh, approaches, but very successful approaches. You know, here locally, we're very much still doing the um, each facility kind of doing their own thing, um, which is kind of can be a little bit difficult and frustrating because, you know, if one, say ours, has its three or four that it's doing a day and they fill up, well, then my patient may not get it, even though there's a spot open just down the street, the other hospital. And so I think, you know, ideally, it sounds like having that regional system or a centralized system that both of you have of some nature that allows for that batching and bringing everybody in from around, you know, I think that's that's an ideal plan. Um, and, you know, thankfully, it sounds like everybody there is participating and willing to work together and set aside some of those long-lasting turf battles of some of these hospital systems in order to kind of get a, a common goal and a common uh, common solution. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you guys if they have more questions? They look they're looking into starting these programs, uh, uh, things getting going in their communities, their hospitals, their uh, their areas. Dr. Farini, how can uh, folks get in touch with you? So for us, um, we have the URL for our website referral, and it's mab.sphp.com. There is also an email that is mabreferrals dot com for patients who don't have a primary care provider to refer them this way that email comes to me and I go through it every day and a lot of times it's just like you know I don't have a PCP but I'm 56 and asthma and um you know I live in fast track or or, or in the urgent care setting so we wanted to make sure that those patients weren't left out because again, it's it's a government supplied treatment that is important of ending a pandemic. So we want to make sure homeless and patients who don't have PCPs are not um, off the list to get it. So there's those the email and then the URL. And I was going to say for for your system, we have that too, where there's multiple hospitals doing it, not as much as our our institution. But we do. Everybody has each other's um, email and text. And, you know, sometimes they'll contact me and say, I can't fit this person on. Can you get them? Or sometimes I'll do the same back to them. We, we were servicing the nursing homes for a while. And so I was contacting literally an hour and a half away for a hospital to take three nursing home patients that were somewhere in between for us. So, you know, I think, like you said, get rid of the turfs. It's, you know, government funded, um, medical treatment, just get them in where you can and, and then it works. And Dr. Winkler. Yeah, that was, yeah, that that's exactly right. I mean, you can't mention enough that not everyone has a PCP. So one of the toughest decisions we made from the beginning was does someone need a referral? And so the first day we opened when we had those four patients, plus or minus, um, people had to have a referral from a PCP. And right away I realized with my boots on the ground, being in there treating these patients, I was like, we need to reach the underserved, not just through clinics, but also through the ER, um, anywhere they may walk into to seek care. So, you know, it's difficult because you wanna have a referral. You want someone to be able to follow up at the MAB with their PCP, but after the first day, we decided that we would take referrals from ER docs. And, and we have that um, um, strac.org forward slash RIC, R-I-C, Regional Infusion Center. So we use that website and any, any physician, APP that's working in an ER that is seeing a patient that is 
high risk with COVID, we would accept them as well. In addition to all the, the other ways we tried to reach out to the community to, to get patients in there and get treated. And we've got some resources that are coming out and about uh, from ASAP as well. Um, talking with Dr. Sandy Snyder, um, who actually was the uh, motivation for this podcast, referring uh, both of you guys to, to assist us here with the information because of the successes that you've had. And we want to make sure that, um, that we have the most up-to-date um, treatments, options, therapies, and tips um, and tools to make things happen as we start to hopefully uh, end up on the back nine of the COVID pandemic. So as for me, you can contact me, rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, or at Everyday Med on Twitter. And I really appreciate uh, you guys joining me today. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Winkler. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Dr. Fiorini. Thank you as well. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Frontline.